We continue our journey with the early church in the book of Acts. We've seen two miracles. We've seen two sermons. And now, this morning, we're going to see the response to those. The response of the world, and then also the response of the church. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is holy, and it is sufficient. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would attend your word with power, that you would teach us from this word, that you would teach us our duty, that you would teach us who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and O oh Lord, that we would be drawn closer to you. We ask all of this in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Have you ever felt alone? Not in the sense of being lonely, but in the sense of being vulnerable. In the sense that maybe the whole world was against you. Or you couldn't see how you were going to get out of a certain situation. Maybe that's even happened to you as you had an opportunity to speak to someone else about the Lord Jesus Christ. As a hostility may have occurred. Or perhaps comments were made that were unfriendly, or a crowd seemed to come around you. It's difficult when we feel we are alone. 
We can't have the same kind of boldness that the scripture requires of us. And so this morning we will see that Peter and John, although they were by themselves, they were not alone. Out in front of them was King Jesus. With them was the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see the word of God go forward. And we see the church of God go forward. And we see that nothing can prevail against it. And so what I would like us to see this morning are three things. The first thing is, I would like us to see the great opposition that faced Peter and John. We gain no benefit by sugarcoating the situation. There is great and mighty opposition against the apostles. But we will see that in the face of this great opposition, that Peter has a greater answer to give to them. An answer that is greater than their opposition. And then finally, we will see that this is because Peter knows the greatest Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is king over all. And it is because he knows the Lord Jesus that Peter is able to resist the opposition, to go forward and to be victorious. Well, let's think about first what's happening before we get to our text. Remember what has happened in the first three chapters. The context here for the church. The church is growing. It is experiencing remarkable growth. But on the whole, it is still pretty small. A 3,000 person church is big until you plop it in the middle of the city of Houston. Then it looks kind of small. You all know how I am with math, but so I won't give you the percentages, but it's 3,000 out of 6 million, that wouldn't be very big. It wouldn't be something that would be intimidating. This is the nature of the church. We have to also remember that the church does not have many leaders. Of course, it does have the apostles, but they are but 12, and their leaders don't really have much experience being leaders. It's really been a matter of weeks since Jesus has left them. So here they are, this small group that is growing, and perhaps there's vulnerability from there because they don't know each other as well as they should. They have a lack of leadership. And then finally, they're pretty much still unknown in the community. They don't have billboards up on the equivalent of I-10. They don't place ads in newspapers. They don't even have a web page. So they are virtually unknown. And what they do is they go into the temple courts to pray and to tell the story of Jesus. We also need to remember that the context in which this is happening is one of turmoil. Don't forget that there is great political turmoil between the Jews, between other nationalities, and the Romans. As a matter of fact, one of the main accusations against Jesus was that he was an insurrectionist against the Romans. So if you think our political times are turbulent with rallies and speeches and maybe even some riots, that is an everyday occurrence in Jerusalem and Judea. So there is political turmoil, but there is also religious turmoil. Not just amongst the Christians and the Jews, but there are various sects of the Jews. The only people, perhaps, that the Sadducees hate more than Jesus are the Pharisees and vice versa. And so it is a time in which we see bubbling up, festering wounds. And this small ragtag group is placed in their midst. 
This is the context in which this incident happens. And I think it's important for us to remember it. So Peter has just healed this lame man, and he has preached a second incredible sermon to the people of God, and they have been converted, and the church is growing. And as Peter is speaking, the opposition comes. Now, who is this opposition? I've told you that it's great, but let's get an idea of it, the breadth of it. First, we see that the priests come. Now, this is established religion. These are not ordinary Levites. These are not country pastors. These are the priests who attend on the temple. They would have power. They could excommunicate people at will. They were the ones in charge of the temple worship. And they were powerful amongst the people as well. They were the ones that told people whether their sacrifices were acceptable or not, whether they were blemished or not. If a priest looked at you the wrong way, or if you got on a priest's bad side, you would be in significant trouble. So organized religion comes up against Peter and John. But it's not just organized religion. We also see the captain of the temple. Now this is a military police The temple guard were a crack group of Jewish policemen or soldiers. And their job was to make sure nothing bad happened in the temple. Not only so that the temple was preserved, but because if anything got out of hand, the Roman soldiers would burst in and defile the temple. And so this was a crack group. They were there to prevent disturbances. You might, in your mind's eye, picture a crack security team from the bad guys of a movie, armed with Uzis and helmets and vests. They were there to make sure nothing happened and they would brook no opposition. The captain of the temple was actually the second most powerful person in Jerusalem after the Roman governor. There was the governor, the high priest, and the captain of the temple. So we have established religion, and then we have armed authority coming up against Peter. But there's another group, the Sadducees. Now, some of you are familiar with the Sadducees. They are often used in the same breath as the Pharisees, as they oppose Jesus. But we need to remember who they are. They are the upper wealthy class of citizens. They were connected with the governor. You see, their thing was... They wanted to work the system. They had wealth and they had power because they were willing to compromise with the Roman occupiers. And because of that, a Sadducee was high priest during all of the Roman occupation. So we're talking about a wealthy upper class that takes themselves back. The word Sadducee we think comes from Zadok, who was the great high priest under Solomon. So they are full of themselves, and they know that they have power. They can snap fingers and things happen. So we have established religion. We have an army or a police force. We have the wealthy upper class. And then we see later that there are rulers and elders and scribes in verse 5. These are the respected civic leaders in the community. So not just the religious leaders, but the civic leaders. These Rulers and elders and scribes made up a group called the Sanhedrin. It's the same group that tried Jesus. 
They were made up of 70 persons plus the high priest who presided as kind of the speaker of the Sanhedrin or the president of the Sanhedrin. And they involved men of high stature and high family authority in the town. But they also involved the scribes, those who were set to copy down God's word. Now, don't think of the scribes here as human copy machines. No, because copying was such a difficult task and was such an important task, they were charged not only with making sure every copy was perfect, but they were charged with making sure that it was interpreted correctly. All of these groups brought against Peter and John. But there's one last group or person that we need to see, and that is that Annas the high priest and Caiaphas the high priest were there as well. So this wasn't an unruly mob. They were led by a leader, a leader who was smart, who was shrewd, who was persuasive. Annas is called the high priest here, even though he wasn't. He had been deposed by the Romans, who wanted to put his son-in-law in his place, Caiaphas. But Annas had so much authority that he was still referred to as the high priest. This is a great opposition that John and Peter are facing. And they are not in a good mood. You see, what happens here is they come and they are greatly annoyed. Now, this word here does not mean that they were a little bit peeved at what was happening. Or that it wasn't their favorite day of the week. No. The only other time in the scripture that this is used is when Paul is annoyed at the, at the slave girl who is possessed by a demon who walks behind him shouting blasphemies. They are greatly annoyed. They are disturbed. They are angered. They are worked up. And they are greatly annoyed at what has happened. You see, they thought that they had killed the snake. You all are from Texas. You know the rule with snakes, right? How do you kill a snake? Do you cut it in half? Do you cut the tail off? No, what do you do? You cut off the head. And when you cut off the head, what happens? The snake dies. And from their perspective, they did that. They took Jesus and they put him up on a cross and they killed him. Sure, there was this business, some people think he's still alive, but we've taken care of this once and for all. And now, here comes Peter in the Temple Mount and he's preaching, and he's preaching Jesus. And he has authority like Jesus. And people are believing him like they believed Jesus. And worse yet, he's preaching Jesus. Didn't we take care of this, they might think of themselves? They are really annoyed. Imagine how you would feel if you thought you had dealt with something finally. Perhaps it's weeds in your garden, and you go out and you buy the biggest thing around up you can spray, and you spray it and it looks good, and you come back and they're back. You spray it again and you come back and they're back. You get to the point where you get angered. That's what the opposition is. But they're not only angered at what's happening, they're angered because Peter is hitting them where it counts. Their power, their authority. You see, they are the ones who are supposed to teach, not ignorant fishermen from Galilee. 
And you can hear it in their voice. Well, in the Greek, you can hear it in their voice. When they say, well, who are you to teach? That you is emphatic. It's at the end. We might even say, who are people like you to teach? By whose name did you get the authority to do this? They are annoyed at what's happening. They are annoyed at the events. They are annoyed at the usurpation of their power. And they are annoyed at what is being taught. Because you see, Peter is teaching the resurrection from the dead. And if there was one thing that the Sadducees hated, it was the resurrection. It was what separated them mainly from the Pharisees. So they... They can't stand the fact that the resurrection is being preached, but the others are in agreement because even if they believe in the resurrection, it's one thing to talk about a final resurrection. It's another thing to say that Jesus is risen now and it's his resurrection that causes all others. So there is great anger here. But you see, this is really no different than sometimes the situations that you and I face. Because you see, these are the weapons of the world. False religion, armed power, wealth, anger, authority structures. This is how the world attacks Christianity all the time. Different names, different groups. But the opposition that you and I face is great, Christian. We don't need to go to Times Square to see it. We don't need to go to an art gallery to see it. We don't need to speak to hostile atheists to see it. The world is hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it manifests itself in these ways. And so the opposition comes upon Peter. Now I've detailed for you who this opposition is, but you have to get the vivid image in your mind that Peter is standing perhaps much like I am at this pulpit. And everyone is listening. Now, if we were preaching here right now and the door slammed loudly, we would all turn and be distracted, wouldn't we? What would we do if someone came out of the back of that door and walked up here to the pulpit and said, Come with me! Now! And grabbed me and took me off. You'd be a bit frightened, wouldn't you? I'd be scared to death. But you see, that's what they do. The word there is very vivid. They come upon them. They seize upon Peter. It's the same word that is used on how our Lord will come. It is a violent seizing. It is a shock to the system. And this is what they want to do. You see, they don't want to walk up and say, "Uh, Excuse me, uh, Peter, son of Jonah, could we have a word with you? No, they grab him by the tunic and you can imagine the guards come, swords drawn, and they drag them off. And then they proceed to intimidate. Have you ever been intimidated by someone? Maybe someone is trying to explain to you that the Bible doesn't really say what you think it says and they're trying to intimidate you by peppering you with Bible verses like a machine gun. You don't even have time to look them up. But you know Jesus is God. But you know there's a trinity. But you know the Bible is true. But someone keeps throwing these Bible verses at you. You feel intimidated. Maybe you've felt physically intimidated by someone. 
And you see, that's what they are trying to do. That's what the world is trying to do. They throw them in jail. Now, this is not a punishment. This is a holding cell. He's telling them to cool their heels because it's evening. Side point. Peter came into the temple at 3 and he preached. It's now nighttime. So he had been out speaking to the people for several hours. It was obvious what was happening in the crowd. And so they dragged him off and figured, we'll cool down this situation. We'll let them cool their heels in the clink. And then we'll deal with them tomorrow when they're tired and they're hungry. And they haven't been able to clean themselves. Yes, that'll be intimidating. So that's what they do. We could also imagine that there are threats brought against them. We can imagine that as the guards are dragging them away, they're threatening Peter and John. We know this from verse 21, because they issued further threats. So there must have been initial threats. What would those threats be? Well, perhaps one big burly guard would pull Peter aside and say, I have five minutes alone in a room with you, buddy. You won't be speaking anymore. You won't have teeth to speak. Or maybe in a low whisper, do you remember what we did to Jesus? You're next. This is intimidating. This is what Peter faces. This is what we face. If we're honest with ourselves, we're afraid by resistance of the world. We're afraid people won't like us. We're afraid we'll lose our jobs. We're afraid we'll lose our income. We're afraid we'll lose our standing and be embarrassed. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with the great opposition that is before us every day as we walk out these doors? Peter knows how. He doesn't limit the opposition. Oh, no. He says, let the opposition come, because it just shows how much greater King Jesus is. And he gives them a greater answer. Now notice how he begins. He begins on the defensive. He is offering up a defense. Peter knows this well. This is what Peter will say in his first letter to his his flock. He will say, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in you. And we could almost add in our mind, like I did in Acts 4. So Peter is ready and he gives an answer. And it's it's a pretty good answer because he's got innocence on his side. When they ask him, when they bring him into the trial court, a big, huge semicircle rose high, 71 men, and they accuse him on high. Perhaps he's still got sores from jail, and they say, by whose authority do you do this? He says, oh, you mean the healing of the crippled man? Oh, that good deed that we did. That's what you want to know. Now think about that. Peter's immediately saying, I haven't done anything wrong. The worst you could accuse me of is healing someone. I haven't disturbed the peace. I haven't hurt anyone. And so he has a good defense. This reminds us, too, that we should have a good defense, that we should live lives that are spotless, that are without reproach, so that when we are falsely accused, we can point to our own innocence. Now, that doesn't mean that others are going to accept it. They don't accept Peter's defense. But we are honest before God. And we have an honest defense. 
He says, not only have we done nothing wrong, we've actually done something good. This good deed, the word for good deed, is a word that is used for something that you give a reward for. It's something that a reward is expected, not punishment. And there's no denying what Peter has done. Do you see here in verse 10? He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, the man is right there. Perhaps he's brought in as a witness. Perhaps they threw him in the clink as well. But no one can deny that he's been healed. No one can deny that they are innocent. Peter also is filled with the Holy Spirit, the text tells us in verse 8. Now, it's important to remember, this is not the general filling of the Holy Spirit that all believers experience. This is a specific kind of verb that describes that the Holy Spirit came upon Peter at this very moment. This is the fulfillment of Mark 13. You remember when Jesus says, don't give any thought to what you will say, for I will send my spirit and he will teach you what you are to say. Peter is inspired by the Holy Spirit right there and he is inspired just for this time and just for this place. I want you to notice one last thing about Peter's defense. And it's something I think more Christians would benefit from. We're going to see in a minute that Peter is forthright. But do you see that Peter is very respectful? He doesn't yell out, This court has no authority over me. I have rights. You can't tell me what to do. Who are you? You should be on trial. No, what does he do? He says, Rulers of the people and elders. He addresses them respectfully. Now, he will get pointed, but he is not trying to be intentionally obnoxious. You see, this is a wonderful example for us. We say we need to confront with the word, and if the word offends, so be it. And that's exactly what Peter does, and we'll see in a minute. But at the same time, we need to take care that we do not offend. Let the word do the offending. We don't bring the word with a snide voice or with some mannerism. No, Peter is respectful. But you see, Peter does not remain on the defense. He goes on offense. Because Peter is a kingdom-thinking man. He's thinking about the kingdom. You see, he could have put a period after verse 9. He could have said, well, why are we here? If you want to know how this man got healed, it was by Jesus' name that he got healed. Period. Full stop. End of story. Can I go now? But no. Peter is not just trying to defend himself. He is not intimidated at all. Peter says to himself something that perhaps you and I should catch. Peter sees himself in chains before court, and he says, I am never going to get another opportunity like this. I've got a captive audience. I've got all the rulers. I've got the high priest. I've got a man here as a witness who's been healed. I'm going to go for it. And he takes the opportunity that God has given to him, and he jumps on it. Now, have you ever had that experience? Maybe you haven't been in a court, but 
Maybe it's kids, you have an opportunity to tell someone on your baseball team or your soccer team about VBS. Or about what you learned in Sunday school. Because they're your friend and you have an opportunity and you can grab it. Perhaps you have a coworker who's going through a lot of pain. And you have an opportunity to grab it, to tell them about the gospel. You see, with Peter, we need to grab these opportunities. Peter is ready to go on the offense. And the Holy Spirit has filled him and he is bold beyond measure because now he will let the truth of the word do its work. He says, you are the ones who crucified Jesus Christ. You are the ones who missed God's plan. This was the cornerstone and you builders rejected it. You missed God's plan. Now think about how offensive that would be. This is covenantal language. He says, because you missed it, the whole nation of Israel could be under judgment. You have blown your job. This is not just telling someone that they failed to believe in Jesus. These are the guardians of God's religion. And they have missed the entirety of the point. Presses that home. And they are not happy about it. But you see, this is how Peter speaks because he believes in the power of the word. He's just seen it. You see, the Sanhedrin had hoped that they had taken care of the situation. And while they're dragging Peter off, people are going to be baptized because they believe the word of God. And the church is growing now to 5,000 men, not including women and children. So if we look here and apply the same kind of ratio, our church has gone from 120 to 3,000, to probably 15,000 because of the power of the word of God. This is a greater answer that Peter has than the opposition can handle. How does Peter have this kind of answer? How does he have this kind of boldness? You may say to yourself, I could never do that. If I was in jail, I'd have trouble standing up. I have trouble with my neighbors. How does Peter get this kind of boldness? Because Peter knows Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest Savior. He is the greatest Savior that God sent. He is the one and only Savior. There is none like Him. And our passage here tells us this. Look at how Jesus is described here in verse 10. It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead. Who is Jesus? Well, first of all, he is Savior. That's what Jesus means. Jehovah saves. Jesus is the Savior. And he is also the Savior that is the fulfillment of God's plan because he is the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. But Peter also reminds us that he is from Nazareth. That God takes the lowly things of the world and raises them up for his glory. Do you remember Philip's comment about Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, really? Jesus did. Nazareth, that backwater town that was prophesied to be part of the fulfillment of God's plan. The, Masai, the Savior, the Messiah, who comes from Nazareth and who was opposed by men. He was put up on a cross and crucified. But Peter reminds us that that is not the end of the story because God has raised him up. He is alive. Peter is saying to us 
as well as to the court, that right now Jesus is alive. You don't worship a Jesus written in a book. You don't worship a Jesus that people are nostalgic about. Jesus is alive today. He is your king today. He leads you today. And if you have not come to the place where you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not believed the word, he demands that of you today. There is no other hope. There is no other way to face opposition. There is no other way to be with God. This is the greatest Savior than you could ever imagine. It is Jesus. Peter calls upon you today to trust in him. To trust in him for your life. To trust in him for your soul. To trust in him for your family. And you see, because Jesus is so great, he is the cause of this opposition. See, Peter knows it's not him. It's not the clothes he's wearing. It's not the words he's choosing to speak. It's not the text he picked. The reason all of this opposition from the priests, from the police, from the Romans from the high priest, from the rulers, from the elders, from the Sanhedrin. They all come because they hate Jesus. And if we think about it, that's a comfort for us. You see, kids, when other kids make fun of you or won't play with you, you see, guys, when people think you got all your priorities mixed up, because you're not reaching for the gold star. Ladies, when people think you're not being all you can be because you're seeking to raise godly children, you see, it's not really you they're after. And so we can take refuge in King Jesus, because he is the cause of the opposition. You see, they are the builders, but they would not acknowledge that Jesus was the cornerstone. And in spite of that, God laid the stone. And there is nothing in the world that the world hates more than God having his will instead of theirs be done. You see, God doesn't need the builders. He will do what he will do, and they look and they despise the fact that they are not important, that they are not at the center Jesus is the cause of their opposition. Finally, Jesus is the greatest Savior that you could ever imagine because he is the only way of salvation. Verse 12 is a well-known verse, isn't it? Perhaps one of the best-known verses in all the Bible. Perhaps it's a verse you've even used when witnessing to someone. And there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, there's salvation in no one else because there's no one like Jesus. He's the God-man. He's perfect. There is no one who can compare to him. Not Buddha, not Muhammad. No one comes close to Jesus. He is in a class by himself. He is the second person of the Trinity. But you see, it's not just that he is unique. It's also that God's plan is unique. You see, there is no choice about our salvation. Well, I will say there is one choice. It's God's choice. God has chosen how he will redeem. 
And he has said, there is no other name under heaven but Jesus. God is in charge of his own salvation. And if you look at God and you say, well, that's nice, but I really thought I could just maybe be a nice guy. I could give money to charity. How about I sit in church? No. There is no other name. There is no other way. God chooses salvation. Now, this seems harsh to the world. It seems narrow, doesn't it? You maybe have this conversation with your friends. It's so, you're so narrow in your thinking. So is the gate. They may look at you and they may say, well, you know, it's so exclusive. Why can't we be more, more inclusive and, and say all religions take us to heaven? It's exclusive because God has provided the way of salvation. He hasn't left a Chinese menu for us to choose from. He has given to us the one who actually and really saves. Some may say, well, you know, it's, that's kind of intolerant. You telling me what I must believe. Well, in a sense, it is intolerant because we are condemned already before God. You see, Christian, never be afraid that the way of salvation is narrow, exclusive, and intolerant. Because we are not worthy of that. It is only by God's grace that salvation comes to us. And we must never apologize for God, ever. We must never apologize for Jesus, ever. There is no other name under heaven by which anyone, not just you, but your families, your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, there is no other name by which anyone may be saved. Because you see, Peter is narrow. He's intolerant. He's exclusive. But he's also true. It doesn't help anyone if a fire breaks out here and I say, the way out is through the back. Let's go back into this room. There's no door back there. I'm not helping anyone by offering another option that is not a real option. You see, Peter takes the question of who saved this man and he applies it to everyone. Because you see, you and I are just as helpless in our sin as that lame man is. Jesus is the only way of salvation. There is no other name. And because of that, there is a necessity upon you today to believe in Jesus Christ. Only by having faith in Christ will you be saved. Only by having Jesus Christ will you live a life of joy and peace. Only by having Jesus Christ will you be able to witness to others. There is no other name. Do not be ashamed of the name, but rather glory in it as God's chosen Savior.